in some ways, right. the best thing we got is commiseration with one another to like stand by each other and, and help each other out. Because the fact of the matter is, I just spent five episodes, you know, telling my story. And uh, I've spent, I don't know how many years on Catholic radio explaining doctrine and history mm-hmm. and theology and and all that. But give me 10 minutes it, with one of my family members who asked me one even like moderately difficult question. And I like become like porky pig right like i can't say anything (laughs) like i have nothing i got nothing Well, hello and welcome to another languishing and brooding episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, who has uh, has a lot to share today, let's just say. If you like what you've heard in previous episodes, you want to find out more about the resources we have through the Coming Home Network. We're an apostolate that's basically full of people who come from every background imaginable. Uh, and now we're Catholic. And you can find out more about that at chnetwork.org. While you're there, by the way, if you appreciate what we do and want to help support it, you can click on the button to donate, and we'd be most appreciative because everything we do is uh, is donor-supported. So, And if you want to find a community of people like yourself, uh, perhaps you're on a journey not unlike Ken's, then please do check out our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Org. Ken, today we walk into the valley of the shadow of death because last we spoke to you, you had just quit being a pastor, and now, I guess the question is, what happened next? Well, allow me to say hello to you first. Yeah, okay, <laughs> Bye-bye, you, you get that out of the way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, when we concluded last week, I basically had walked out the door and... um having resigned my ministry as a Baptist pastor. And uh, I want to begin here. I remember the first time that I was asked to tell the story, which was, I don't know, some months, maybe a year after um, after leaving the ministry. Um, I remember that I, I went into my office at home, Matt, and I sat down and I just thought, okay, how do I tell this story? Where do I begin? And I had a copy of a book on my desk titled, very familiar, titled Surprised by Truth. Okay, oh, yeah. Book Pat edited Madrid. By yeah, edited by Pat, uh, one of the first books I had read, actually, in which 11 converts to the faith tell their stories. Uh, they give their reasons, uh, historical, theological, biblical, personal, spiritual, uh, for having become Catholic. I grabbed that book, and I, I was just sort of like fumbling around, like, where do, I, where do I begin? What do I do? I opened the book to the preface, and this is what I read. Conversion is a form of martyrdom. It involves the surrender of oneself body, mind, intellect, and faith to Christ. It requires docility and a willingness to be led to the truth. And for many, the truth lies in a direction where you do not want to go. Uh, Quoting there from John 21 there at the end. And I remember, Matt, I had to laugh because it was just so true. I mean, for for many, the truth lies in a direction where you do not want to go. I work here at the Coming Home Network with all kinds of Protestant pastors, current Protestant pastors, who um, 
are feeling that same thing. You know, they're coming to understand, they're coming to see the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith, and it lies in a direction that they simply don't want to go. And I got to say, that was certainly true of me. I want to repeat something I said at the beginning, um, even more so for Tina, but I had no conception of becoming Catholic. Becoming Catholic was something that had literally never crossed my mind even one time. And yet here I was, and I had just resigned my ministry. I remember about a week after I walked out of my Baptist church for the last time, um, my phone rang very early in the morning. And, you know, I, I was in bed still. I leaned over, I grabbed the receiver. You know, there, there used to be such a thing as a receiver, you know that. And I put it to my ear, and it's, it's Scott Hahn's voice on the other end of the line calling to congratulate me by saying, hello. This is Martin Luther. What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, man. I remember I said, hi, Scott. <laughs> but what had I done? I guess that's really uh, encapsulates pretty well the feeling that I had at that point. What had I done? And of course, he was laughing and he was he was calling to congratulate me on the fact that I had actually resigned my ministry. Um, but anyway, what had I done? And that's where we're going to pick up here this week. Now, I want to start by commenting on something. A lot of people, when they hear the stories of Protestant pastors who, who leave their ministries to become Catholic, many people respond with a, with a, I can't believe how courageous you are. You know, you've heard that, right? I can't believe how courageous you were. And I just want to sincerely put the kibosh on that in a way, at least in my life, that doesn't apply at all. I had no courage. <laughs> I was afraid. I was so afraid. But here's the situation. As I, as I learned more and more about the case for the, for the Catholic faith, my love for the Catholic Church was growing. And, and as my love for the Catholic Church was growing, my desire to become Catholic was growing. I was at a point where I wanted very badly to become Catholic. And then on the other side of the equation, um, it was feeling more and more difficult to remain in the position I was in. You know, getting up in the pulpit every week at a Baptist church, and I'm a Baptist pastor ordained, uh, getting ready to teach a new members class where I was going to address a room filled with people, and I'm supposed to explain to them why they should become Baptist if they're not already, and why they should join our Baptist church. Um, standing at the Lord's Supper, I mean, at, the Lord, at, at what we call the Lord's Table, um, to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, and, and near the end, I mean, just think of it, thinking to myself, I'm not a priest, and this isn't the Eucharist. How much longer can I do this? So, so my growing love for the Catholic Church and my growing tension in the position I was in, this is how it was for me. It wasn't courage. I was really frightened. It was more like I found myself in a burning building. And you know, if your house catches on fire, everything's up in flames, you can drop to the ground and you can crawl around for a certain length of time, right? You can stay underneath the smoke. Um, but at some point, you just have to run out the door. And, and, and that's really how it was for me. I was fleeing a burning building. That's how it felt for me. And you know, when, when you're standing outside a burning building and you see someone run out the front door, you typically don't respond to them by saying, my, how courageous you are <laughs> to have fled that burning. 
<laughs> well, nope. so you bring up an interesting question, and I don't know if we, this is the space to get into it, um, but I think it's it's something that's at the back of the minds of a lot of people that you and I have talked to over the years who have either gone from uh, some sort of you know pastoring position, left it all behind, and aimed towards the Catholic Church, knowing that 99% of them are not going to become Catholic priests in this process, right? Uh that uh, and very often when someone is coming from a denomination that's that's going through schism or scandal or upheaval or administrative chaos or mm-hmm. something, and the the question sometimes is that people end up asking themselves, "Am I just trying to leave the problems behind that I'm seeing happen in my current denomination, or am I running towards something that I know I'm supposed to be a part of?" Um, were you weighing anything Mm -hmm. like that? Because, I mean, it seems to me like up until this point, you've had actually a pretty good experience as a Baptist pastor. Yeah, and so I'd have to to say that for me, it it was the latter of what you said. Um, uh, You know, uh, of course, I was concerned about everything, so I was concerned about my own motivations. I was concerned about, okay, what are you doing? Are you just tired of being a pastor? Are you tired of the, you know, of the responsibility and you're wanting to escape? Oh, Ken, you know yourself. You know you can run after every shiny thing that crosses your path. So that, that's why it took me so long, because I didn't want to make a move in, until I knew what I was doing. But no, there was no crisis going on in my, in my um, denomination, and there was no crisis really going on in my congregation. In fact, uh, at the end, you know, there was a bit of a crisis breaking, you know, breaking out, but it wasn't something that I would have run from. It was something I was actually needed at the church to handle, so I felt bad leaving. But no, th- that wasn't a big issue for me, although it, 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 it could be for others. On the other hand, there were plenty of issues. I mean, because looking back now, I realize I, I ran out of a burning building, but I just ran out into a forest fire, you know, <laughs> you know there was... It was it was like running out of a burning building into a, into a burning forest because there were many other issues that came. And that's really what I want to outline today. And I do this, you know, um, you know, everybody likes to tell their own story. So there's that, but I do this hopefully, um, to, uh, commiserate with so many other Protestant pastors that I work with who are leaving the ministry now and are dealing with difficult times to let them know that I fully, that I understand. Okay. Okay, first of all, there were hard times to follow dealing with really great friends that we had made in the church that we were now separated from. And Tina and I found ourselves quite alone. Now, t- Tina had some of the best friends in her life were in the congregation that I had pastored at this point for eight years. So there, there was that separation that occurred where we were alone and many of them felt confused and bewildered. Um, many were very upset in my congregation there was one person, I thank God only one, but there was one person who told Tina and I um, or communicated to us clearly that we had been taken captive by the devil and she, quote, never wanted to speak to us again, unquote. Um, I had fellow pastors in my denomination that I was dealing with who were calling me on the phone. Now, their motivation was good. They were trying to save a fellow pastor from, uh, you know, trying to talk me down off the cliff, as it were, Um so I had these conversations with pastors where here I had been studying the Catholic faith inside and out 24-7 for almost four years, and I'm talking to Baptist pastors, many of whom had never even read one book written by, by a Catholic apologist or a Catholic theologian, 
and trying to debate with them on the phone. And, um, you know, and the conversations were very discouraging for them because they, they realized pretty quickly that they weren't going to make any headway. And so those conversations ended. Then I remember getting a call one day where I was in, informed that the denominational leaders had met and that I had been formally stripped of my ordination. I had been what they call defrocked. So I received that news. Yeah. yeah so I'm glad that you're bringing this up for it. Yeah, for a number of reasons. I think, too, that um, if anybody's watching this because they're trying to figure out if there, if anybody's watching this who's not interested in Catholicism at all, but wondering why like their pastor friend did this, um, you know, this is a helpful conversation to have. But also, I think, you know, helpful to sort of name why this can be such a such a bizarre thing to discuss with your friends, because at least with a, a lot of the pastors that we've been talking to, mm-hmm. most of the people who are reading the Catholic stuff and 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 absorbing the Catholic arguments are doing it kind of under the cover of night. They're not doing this in community with yeah. the fellow pastors in their community or in community with their elders no. at their men's Bible study or any of these kinds of things. So it can seem like it comes completely out of the blue when in fact it's often years and like years of, you know, kind of realizing. Yeah. And, and, uh, the full weight of something. In your case, what did you say? Like four years um, before you decided that you were going to walk out the door. Yeah. Um, at, yeah. And of, when you talk the, about the coming under the pastor, when you mentioned coming under the cover of darkness, I thought immediately of Nicodemus. It was like Nicodemus coming to right, Jesus exactly. at night. And for fear you know, of the Sanhedrin. He was a leader, right? <laughs> you know? right. Because he was a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. And it's the same kind of thing. I was a leader. I was a pastor. I didn't want to disturb my congregation. I didn't want to throw everybody into a panic until I was sure. And so you end up being very alone. But then once I walked out, suddenly I was involved in endless debates with my coworkers in the ministry, with friends, family, you know, debating with people. And I have to say, in almost every case, people who had never read a single book written by a Catholic author and didn't know even the beginnings of the case to be made for the Catholic faith, and we're just presenting me with one caricature after another, one misrepresentation after another, one stereotypical, you know, bad conception of Catholicism after another. In fact, there was a point at which Tina said to me, and she was right, she said, you've got to just stop. You need to find a job. You can't be just sitting here debating with people all day long after you've left your job and, and lost it. But let me move on. So there was that issue with friends. That was one of the part of the dark night that was coming. But there were also hard times dealing with our children. My um, daughter at the time, our daughter was 14 years old, very precocious, very smart, and she had a sincere love for the Lord, and she loved her youth group and loved her evangelical experience. So she was too old, really, to just simply say, uh, you're coming with us now, you're a Catholic, that wasn't going to fly. And yet she was too young to say to us, um, explain to me the reasons why you're becoming Catholic. She just felt bad and she wanted to stay at the church. And so what we did, I mean, and this was hard, but Tina and I made the decision that we would support her in her walk with the Lord and we would pray for her and we would hope that we could talk to her over time. And believe it or not, for months after I resigned, Tina and I dropped our daughter off at the church I pastored on Sunday morning and then picked her up after church. So I, I was pulling into the parking lot every Sunday morning and seeing the, the my congregants, you know, my former congregants. 
Yeah, I was, was just only... going to say, I mean, I've, I've talked to a, a yeah. number of people over the years, uh, you know, who, yeah, you know, whether clergy or laity, the, there's a situation where you've got your kids are friends with someone else's kids. And it's one thing mm-hmm. for you to say to pastor so-and-so or for pastor so-and-so to say to the congregation, I have become convicted that this is my, this is where my conscience has told me I must follow. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to say, oh, my kid and your kid, they can still hang out, right? <laughs> I mean, like, because in a lot of these situations you got, mm-hmm. well, I mean, I remember what it was like in, in, when there was a scandal that blew up the church that I was going into in, in high school. It mm-hmm. was us kids in youth group who were having a blast and singing praise songs together and shooting hoops after church, you know. We know nothing of what's happening at the church board meetings. We just like love each other and yeah. love God. And then it just yeah. drops like a bomb on yeah. us. We're like, wait, so yeah. you're telling me our parents are fighting? What are you talking about? You know? Well, the difficulty that our son has was a little different than that, but 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 you're right on about that. Um, the, the difficulty that he had, he was eight years old. So he kind of came along with us. But he loved his sister and he wanted to, and he didn't know why he couldn't go to church with his sister. And so there was a lot of sadness, a lot of, uh, it, it was hard and, and it remained hard for many years, really. And I'll kind of tell more about that ne- next week when I tell the, the uh, what has happened in the years since. But, but, but that was another real difficulty, um, leaving our daughter at the church, separating our daughter from our son, at least in terms of their church experience. Um, him not understanding. We put him into a Catholic school and he hated it because he didn't want to be there. Um, so difficulties with our kids followed too. That was another one. And then of course there was the issue of work that I need to go into in a bit of detail. Um, because of course, Tina and I had a mortgage. I had bills and I'd had a stable job for many years now. And suddenly I'm walking up and down the sidewalk like like a, uh, who's that guy from Death of a Salesman? You know, Willie Loman. I'm walking around putting in my resume dressed in a cheap suit, you know, and trying to figure out what to do. Um, I might have thought that my advanced degree in theology would get me something in the world. And, um, well, here, I, I want to prove it, actually. Let me run the calculation. Um, times. This is what it got me. Zero. It's zero for those of you listening without screen access. It's zero is what that... It, uh... It's worth nothing. And so literally, I'm wearing a cheap suit. I'm walking up and down the sidewalk. I'm putting in my resume at restaurants to become a waiter. And the reason I did that is I had waited tables during college and seminary. I actually enjoyed being a waiter. And I just thought as a stopgap, if I can get a job at a really nice restaurant, maybe I can w- make good tips and then I can r- figure out where to go from there, okay? And so I'm walking along and I, I, I remember distinctly, Matt, just sort of glancing at myself in a window as I walked by and thinking, oh my word, look at you, you know, this middle-aged guy out with, his, with a stack of resumes. Anyway, I got a job at a restaurant, a pretty nice restaurant, but it's not like they made me the, the maitre d'. And in fact, I learned pretty quickly that it was going to take me about a year to get enough seniority to be on dinner shifts. So I'm working lunch shifts. I'm making almost nothing. And I remember in particular one, one day when, uh, when what I had done just kind of clearly came home to me. I'm standing in the kitchen of this 
Asian-French fusion restaurant on Ventura Boulevard in uh, Southern California. And I'm folding You're making napkins. me hungry, Ken. You're making me very hungry. Yeah, I know. But keep going. It was, it was pretty good food. I'm dressed like a penguin, you know, in my white and black, and I'm folding napkins in the kitchen. And I mean, this happened. And I was folding napkins, and I was thinking about Martin Luther. <laughs> I was kind of like working on some issue. I was thinking about the Reformation. I was thinking about whatever. I was thinking about Luther, I remember, just sort of chewing on something, when all of a sudden I heard someone screaming at me, just yelling at the top of her lungs. And I remember I looked over to the right, and my manager who was probably a dozen years younger than I was, was screaming at me because I wasn't folding the napkins fast enough. <laughs> she was yelling at me because I had slowed down. I'm, I'm thinking about Martin Luther and I'm just slowing down. I'm not getting the job done. And I, you know, I, I apologized. I started rolling faster, but I remember just sort of hanging my head and thinking, Lord, what have I done? I mean, I was the senior pastor of this church for eight years. Um, now I'm, fold, now, now I'm folding napkins and someone's screaming at me because I'm not folding them fast enough. So this was a, my first job after leaving. It was a really humbling experience. You know, another illustration is, you know, as, as a pastor on Christmas Eve, I was always at home. I was always at home with my family. Well, this year I was assigned, you know, uh, everybody had to wait tables. And so I was given a section. And on Christmas Eve, 1996, I remember Tina and the kids came down to the restaurant and sat in my station so I could serve them and we could be together on Christmas Eve. So it was just a, a different world, you know. Anyway, one day I, you know, in, in my frustration and f growing fear, I took a priest out to um, breakfast. And and I remember looking across the table and I, I think I was almost shaking at the time when I, I basically said to him, Father, you're the pastor of a large congregation you have to know somebody who owns some kind of business who needs to hire somebody to do something. <laughs> it was just that vague, you know, you know, help me out. And so about a week goes by when I get a call on the phone from someone who ran a very small headhunting firm, his own private, his own personal headhunting firm. And he invited me to come over and talk to him. So I went over, I talked to him. And he hired me. But of course, what hired me means that it was a 100% commission job that would involve 100% cold, cold calling. calls. Oh, cold calls. Oh. And I showed up. I showed up and there was this little folding card table against the wall. I, I was the only one in the room. He didn't really have a company. He was starting, <laughs> starting a company and it was me. And there was this little card table and there was a phone, and then there was a stack of five by seven cards with the names and phone numbers of medical device and pharmaceutical companies all over Southern California. And he just basically said, get on the phone, call into these companies, get them to hire you as a headhunter, get them to show you open positions they need, and then you'll need to call into other companies and find people for those jobs. It was just that um, blunt. And um, needless to say, I had never dreamed of being a cold calling salesman and I, and I hated it. Uh, not to mention the fact that I was in my fourth month with him working full time before I made a dime, four months. Okay, it, my stomach hurt so badly doing this job and I, my heart goes out to anyone who, who, who uh, uh, understands what I'm talking about and exper has experienced this. But my stomach hurts so badly 
that every morning I would drive out to his house to work and I would just drive past his house and I would just sort of circle neighborhoods for about 10 minutes, just driving up and down this road and that road, just thinking to myself, oh, I can't believe that I have to go into that house. And then I would drive up the driveway and I would walk in and I would sit down and he'd put this long finger on my shoulder and he'd say, he had, he had kind of a rough sounding voice. He'd say, get on the phone, smile and dial. And um, that's what I did. Now I was still waiting tables. So I, w- I would dress in my penguin outfit again. I'd go to headhunt, and then around noon, I'd fly out the door and I'd go over to the restaurant. I'd do the lunch shift and then I'd fly back and I'd work till the end of the day. But it was really tough. And I, it, it was just, it was hard. I, you know, leaving the ministry at this point, I thought I was going to have an emotional breakdown. Um, in fact, at the time I was meeting with a couple of Catholic men on Tuesday night for prayer time, just three, me and three other men. And I can remember distinctly the day when I realized that I might be on the verge of a total emotional collapse. I was sitting at this table and I was describing my life to these three men. And I was talking about we were sinking into debt, living on credit cards, um, the work situation. I was explaining this to them. And, and Matt, looking into their eyes, I could see that they were afraid. <laughs> you know, it's like I recognized what state I was in by looking into their faces because in their eyes I could read that they were thinking, oh my word, this guy's on the verge of cracking up. And I, and I was, I think I was on the verge of cracking up the pressure of all these things. You know, this is only two, three months after leaving the ministry and the pressure of all these things so far was, was killing me. It was killing me. It was really hard. And, um, then there was one more issue to mention. Um, there was as, as though that wasn't enough so far, you know, um, then there was the issue of my father that I, that I've talked about in my, in the opening episode of this series. And I've mentioned a couple of times. Um, my dad, as I mentioned earlier, was a, the only Christianity he had ever known was a very fundamentalist Baptist Christianity. That's what he knew. Um, he loved the Lord. He had a sincere faith in Christ, but his view of Catholicism was just the worst, you know, uh, Catholicism to him was the, was the whore of Babylon the Pope was the Antichrist. I think I mentioned last week or the week before that when I was at his house one day and Pope John Paul II's face appeared on the TV screen, I mean, he literally winced. He turned away and he said, I cannot stand to look at that man. So I would say when it comes to the fear quadrant or fear register, um, I would say the thing I was most afraid of, of all, when I knew that I was making the decision to resign the ministry to become Catholic was having to tell my dad. And here, here's what happened though. Right at the time I was making the decision, we learned that my, that my father had Lou Gehrig's disease. You know what that is? Um, you know, um, the same thing Stephen Hawking had that, you know, puts you in a wheelchair and then you die. Basically, uh, your, the connection between your brain and your large muscles fails, uh, to where you can't walk and then you can't sit, then you can't even lay down, then your lungs can't support breathing and then you die. And, and he was 76 years old at the time, and it was progressing very quickly for him. And he had already become really weak. Um, and, and the last few times I'd been with him, you know, he would just start crying at the drop of a hat. He couldn't walk. He was sitting down. And, and so I went out with a priest again, and I said, what do I do? What do you think I should do? 
And this priest, and I take this as wisdom now, and I'm, and I'm happy I followed what he said. He asked me, does your dad love Jesus Christ? And I said, there's no doubt. And he said, don't tell him. He said, there's no way, given the education that he's had in Christian doctrine, there's no way he's going to be in a position to understand. There's no way he's going to have the strength to even deal with it. You're just going to destroy him. You're just going to you know, send him into depression, believing that his Baptist pastor son has you know, fallen into hell, basically. And so that's what I did, Matt. I, um, I, I was sitting at the kitchen table at his house one day, when I, and I might, it might've been a bad move, but I, when I said to him, you know, dad, I'm not a pastor anymore. And, uh, he, he just kind of nodded and he says, oh, and I said, yeah, I said, I, I had a lot of struggles theologically and I felt that I needed to step down. And because he was so weak, I mean, in the old days, he would have said to me, tell me more, why, what kind of theological struggles, you know, but, but in the state he was in, he just kind of nodded and he said, um, Okay. So um so I was with him. I went to his house. I sat by the hospital bed that had been brought into to the to his living room. I read the Bible with him. I prayed with him and I just let him go in peace. And uh after he died, I told my stepmother, you know, what had happened and she said, "Thank you so much." She said, "Dad would have never ever been able to understand at this point in his life so there was that okay that that's a that's a very difficult thing to try to explain to some people who have not you know grown up Mm -hmm. i I mean people who come from families where everybody's catholic you know it could be very difficult to try to understand and, and especially uh when you come from a family that has like strong christian people in it all the way back um or or even just in your immediate nucleus Mm -hmm. and this is the other thing too that uh you know sometimes people come to you and me and say so um my parent or my sibling you know someone who's very close to them uh just doesn't understand why i'm doing this what should i say to them and i'm like i don't know man (laughs) like i I don't know how to talk to my own family right i mean this is (laughs) In some ways, the best thing we got is commiseration with one another to like stand by each other and, and help each other out. Because the fact of the matter is, I just spent five episodes, you know, telling my story. And uh, I've spent, I don't know how many years on Catholic radio explaining doctrine and history mm-hmm. and theology and and all that. But give me 10 minutes with one of my family members who asked me one even like moderately difficult question. And I like become like porky yeah. pig right like i can't say anything like i have nothing i got nothing you know it's 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 just how it works um this is it's i like know the same reason. i know like, there's a parable or not even a parable there's an account from the life of christ that i don't think i understood as a kid that makes absolutely perfect sense to me now and that is like when jesus goes back to his hometown and people mm-hmm. are like who's it who's this guy like yeah this is the dad's like chops wood around here like we just, we we know this guy since he was a kid who is he what's he a doing like not telling people honor. stuff about stuff a right i mean that, that makes honor, complete in sense to me right like and with his and, own family in some ways right in some ways that, that's the hardest conversation to have because i mean these are yeah. people who've known you your whole life yeah. and 
And yeah. there's, it's not like you could just come up with some stunner of an argument, um, you know, because that's not what it's about in those situations. The way I explained it was in the end, it was a shift in worldview and it, it takes a while to, to enunciate that. Right. I mean, it takes a while to explain that. So I, I know exactly how you feel. In fact, yeah. sometimes I feel so bad. How are you going to put that think, in a blog post? I mean, come on, man. Yeah. Sometimes I feel so bad because I think I have spent like, well, I've been a Catholic like 25 years now, but, but I've spent like th- almost 30 years now absorbing the Catholic faith in every detail. And, and it's almost like I have such a backlog of, log of information that when someone who knows nothing asks me a simple question, Porky Pig's, you know, you know, is that the one who did Porky Pig? Is that what Porky Pig did? That's Porky Pig. Stuttering? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's all, folks. Yeah. You, you know, yeah, it feels that way because your mind is just racing through the files thinking, what do I say? Where do I start? You know, but anyway, okay. So yeah, the Valley of the shadow of death. I ran out of a burning building. I ran into a forest fire that involved our friendships and those who weren't friends, you know, debating and arguing that involved difficulties with our kids, our son and our daughter that involved massive difficulties with money and earning and finding a job and finding something to do. And that in, involved this whole situation with having to tell my father. It's, it's like, yeah, it was really rough. And But I want to turn the corner here as we start to wrap down and simply say, at the same time, and I mean during those same months, good things were beginning to happen. Um, for instance, Tina and I began to be able to talk more openly. It was so difficult for her to talk to me about this when we were still in the church and I was still a pastor and she was still around all of her really good friends there. It was just emotionally so difficult, even though she had begun to to learn and to think and and begun to agree with me on some level, um, we began to talk, and we began to talk more openly. And we decided to go to RCIA class together. You know, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. Um, we came to St. Charles Borromeo Church in North Hollywood, and we um, signed up for the RCIA class. There was a young priest there who befriended us, and um, you know, help to help to bring us along. Um, we also had two families from our church, from the church that I had pastored, who uh, good friends who were very curious and ended up asking questions and discussing and deciding that they wanted to go with us to RCIA. And um, and so when it came to Easter Vigil 1997, um, we we were able to stand in front of that church, the congregation there at St. Charles Borromeo, with, with about 30 people. And with two families that were our friends, two couples, and um, and be received on Easter Vigil, 1997, into the Catholic Church, and and I want to tell you, I mean, I've been describing all the bad so far, but that night, Matt, the the, the moment the old Monsignor of that parish um, took his thumb and made the sign of the cross on my forehead, saying, you know, because I was being confirmed saying, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was like one of the most joyous moments of my entire life, even with all that was happening. And from that time too, I'm going to go into this next week, but everything has changed in the 25 years since that time. Everything has changed. And I want to tell the good news next week, okay, about how we found a home in the Catholic Church and how uh, how our family has done since that time. I want to talk about my daughter becoming Catholic and her Catholic marriage. I want to talk about the nine grandchildren that I have now 
that live up the street from me, nine grandchildren that would not even exist if we had all remained, you know, uh, in the Protestant world. There, there, there's a lot of good news to tell, and I'll get to that next week. But I want to close with just one more passage, something else that Jesus said. Um, Jesus once said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, in his joy he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. And this was my experience really uh, to a T. To a it was so hard to sell everything. And it was so hard to do it to buy the field. But I look back now and that field is loaded, loaded with treasure. And that's where I'll, that's where I'll Way more than you week. thought, by the way, when you put in the bid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's been my yeah. experience. Um, but the other thing, too, that you, you mentioned about the, the Easter vigil and... Um, Mm-hmm. It, you know, I came in in 2005 at the Easter Vigil, so some mm-hmm. was like 14 years it's after just, you. No, I was 97, or, so it was only eight. 97, years. so you know, it was it was eight, eight years yeah. after you. This is this is why yeah. I don't do math. Um, <laughs> but you know, sometimes I'll tell people what I do, or I'll uh, you know mention the name of the program that we work on, the Journey Home, and mm-hmm. and, and some people will be like, well, that's awfully presumptuous to say that. You know, I'm like that term was not invented like that concept like this is a this is a term that's used by those of us who made that journey like that's there's not a really a a better way to describe kind of the feeling of what that is like than like Mm -hmm. your home like a lot of us have been a lot of different places that were good and true and beautiful in their own ways and to the extent that they were true and good and beautiful they were welcoming and we found friends Mm -hmm. there and had amazing experiences and 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 deep uh, you know, encounters with Christ in prayer, but this felt different. You know, it felt different. This was, I didn't, I'm, I thought I might go to a different parish, but I'm not going to a different church. Not anymore. Right. Right. Not anymore. This right. is home. This, yeah, and, this is home. And it may sound presumptuous, but you're right. That's how it feels. It feels like I have come home. Yeah. You know, and we have a lot of people that come to the coming home network and become members who have been through five and six and seven denominations in their life. And for them, I mean, I didn't have that. For, for them, there is such a feeling of having come home. Um, but again, that's what next week will be about. I'm, I'm going to culminate and complete my story next week by talking about how, how we found a home in the Catholic Church and what, what we've learned since then. Yeah. Well, there may be some weird stuff along the way, but, you know, your home's your home. <laughs> that's... Yeah. Like I say, it's it's hard to put it any other way than that, uh, especially for those of us who've been through that that kind of experience. Ken, thank you for sharing like the the valley of the shadow of death. Like honestly, uh, I know did you that enjoy this, my pain. Did you I did enjoy, enjoy your pain? pain to some level, <laughs> mostly to the extent that it helped me feel better about my pain. Uh, you know, with the things that I've shared, but also because I mean, we're not doing this for like therapy reasons. We're doing this because, like, honestly. We remember what it was like. Like, all it took was you picking up Surprised by Truth and being like, oh, my gosh, this is not like new a new kind of pain that nobody's ever experienced, right? This is a kind of mm-hmm. thing that, like, others have trod this path before. Uh, and and if, if, if you're in that situation and, you know, just hearing Ken's story is like, oh, my gosh, I know exactly what that feels like because that's where I am right now, then please understand that that's what the Coming Home Network was, was founded for. That's why Marcus Grodi got some resources and thoughts together in the first place was to mm-hmm. help people 
who are in your situation. So please do contact us. chnetwork.org is where you can find out more. And again, if you're a pastor, uh, we have a scholarship fund set up to yeah. help send you on retreat. So uh, if you're in that situation, again, for pastors specifically, then go to chnetwork.org slash retreats and reach out to us. We would love to connect with you in that way. And of course, you can always go, uh, if you're looking for just an online community of people from around the world um, in all kinds of different states uh, in relation to all this, then community.chnetwork.org. And Kenny Burchard, our former Pentecostal pastor guy who uh, runs our development, would want (laughs) me to tell the rest of you who are in perfectly cushy situations in regard to the church, that uh, we need your support to keep it all going. So click the donate button while you're while you're over busy. You know, I want to say one thing. I, I just want to say one thing in closing too, that if you're out there and you relate to some of the things you're hearing, uh, and you're a Protestant pastor right now, I just want to emphasize the fact that you are not alone. Um, I talk to Protestant pastors every week. Um, just last week, and, and literally, Matt mentioned all over the world, it's true. Last week, I had a Zoom conference with a with a Protestant um, minister in Dubai. Um, I had another conference with a Protestant, well, a, a, a former Protestant pastor in Liverpool, England. I have conferences with them scattered all over the United States and Canada. You're not alone. There are many, many pastors who are on this journey and, and I'm happy to, to meet and talk with every one of them. That's it. India, Brazil. I mean, we got that. That's, the, yeah. that's why Marcus had to put the word international at the end of the, at the, end of the yeah. organization. But, um, yeah. but again, we're here for you. And laity too, okay. by the way. If you're, if you're a, a meager layperson like me, <laughs> I mean, I'll talk to you. I, yeah. uh, I love talking to lay people. But at any rate, Ken, I look forward to hearing how everything became perfect and all your problems went away on next week. Good day to you, sir. Yes, all my problems gone. <laughs> <laughs>